In the years leading up to World War II, it became apparent that war was coming. The nation of France then had spent years building up their military, and they were confident that even if Germany were to invade, that they had the largest army, uh, the most well-equipped army, and the best trained army in all of Europe, and that they could repel the Germans. Well, in May of 1940, the Germans did invade. And one thing became apparent very quickly. France had an inaccurate knowledge of their own power. Uh, they overestimated their own military power and they underestimated the power of their enemy. And this led to catastrophic results. A little after a month later, at the end of June, France had fallen, Paris had fallen, and was occupied by the Germans. They lacked inaccurate knowledge. Well, I want to ask you this this morning. Why did you come here? What did you come here hoping to learn? And what knowledge did you come here to seek? Uh, Paul wrote Ephesians to a small Christian community in a pluralistic pagan society. And as a religious minority, life could often be difficult for these early Christians. And they would have had questions that they would have loved to have the apostle answer for them. Paul, my family disowned me because I no longer worship the goddess Artemis. Paul, I need to find another job because I don't want to craft idols any longer. Paul, my father is sick and dying. How could God let this happen? But of course, we come to church every week with questions of our own. What knowledge are you seeking? Pastor, I need to know how to fix my marriage. Pastor, my kids are off the rails. Pastor, my family thinks I'm insane for joining a church and trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, all of these questions are worthwhile and deserve an answer. And Paul will even answer some of these questions later on in the letter. And if you ever want to talk about things like that, I'm always a phone call away. But Paul here, at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, thinks that there is one thing that is absolutely important that we know. There's one piece of knowledge that it is absolutely vital that we obtain. And that is a knowledge of God and a knowledge of His power. To neglect this knowledge or to have an, an accurate view of God will be just as catastrophic for us as it was for France. So this morning, Paul's going to argue to us that we need, it is vital for us to have an accurate knowledge of God and of His power. If you have your Bibles, pick up with me in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning 
and we are asking that you would grant us this knowledge. God, we want to know you. Because when we know you, we know that we will love you. So God, I pray that if there are any here who do not know you, that they would not leave here without knowing you. God, we praise your name. We thank you. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And grant me an ability to preach your word according to your truth by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you may not know this, uh, but the Apostle Paul was actually Southern. And he loved to use the word y'all. Uh, if you look at verse, verses 15 through 19, you'll see this in several places, although your translation doesn't actually bring it out. Uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give y'all the spirit of wisdom, having the eyes of y'all's hearts enlightened, that y'all may know the hope to which he has called you. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is that in the Greek, Paul is writing a plural you. We don't have that in English unless you're sophisticated like us Southerners. <laughs> Why does, that, why does that matter? Well, because the, the Bible wasn't written to you as an individual. And these epistles were not written to you as an individual. Paul is writing to the church, a community of believers at Ephesus. He's writing to a community, and this writing is to be received as a community. And we see this is uh, the case as we even come to our very first verse. What does Paul say there in verse 15? For this reason, because I have heard of your, plural, faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love, plural, toward all the saints, Paul is encouraging them. Now, uh, remember, Paul planted this church at Ephesus, but it's been almost seven years since he spent any time with them. With them. Uh, in five of those years, Paul has been imprisoned. And so it's been a long time since he's seen them, and he, he receives word that they, they have this incredible faith and he wants to encourage them in this faith. They have a knowledge of God. And we know that it's an accurate knowledge of God. Why? Because of what he says next. A faith in Christ and a love for all the saints. Uh, I'm going to put in a shameless plug for Bible study, but we're going through 1 John right now in Bible study. And 1 John is full of evidences of the faith. True signs that we have real saving faith in Christ. We have an accurate knowledge of his power. And one of those evidences that it gives is love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why in 1 John 3, 16 to 17, he says, he says this, If any of you has the world's goods and you see a brother or a sister in need and you don't open your heart to them, how can you say that the love of God our Father is in you? He's saying if you're truly believing in God, if God has truly poured out his love into your heart, how can you not love those who also love God and even beyond just our own community? Now, I recognize that I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, here. I, I see you guys come in on Sunday morning. I see the joy on your faces when you see one another, when you greet one another. And some of you are even happy to see me. And, and it's an encouraging time. But I just want to to fan that. Uh, true faith is always accompanied by a love for your brothers and sisters, by a desire to be with them, by a desire to show love in tangible ways 
to them. And Paul is going to demonstrate his own love for this church, which he's been apart from for nearly seven years, by saying this in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's been seven years, and Paul is still praying for this church. Paul is still thanking God for these people. Listen, this is kind of a rebuke for me. <laughs> Uh, how often do we actually pray and give thanks for our brothers and sisters in Christ? How often are we thanking God for the way that they have showed up in times that we needed them and in times that we, we don't? And so I want to encourage you to be praying and giving thanks for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's not just praying and, and giving thanksgiving. He makes a particular request to God before he goes on to talk about Knowledge and, and what is this request? Well, let's pick up in verse 17 again. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul's writing, we need a knowledge of God. There is nothing more vital for you today than to know God. And amid all of the present concerns that we have in life, amid all of the things which we are tending to focus on because they are immediate, there is something behind all of those things which is vastly more important than our present concerns, and that is God himself. We need to know God. The 16th century theologian John Calvin wrote this of why we need to know God. He says, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon God's face and then dis descends from contemplating him to scrutinize ourselves. Why? For we always seem ourselves to be righteous and upright and holy. <laughs> this pride is innate in all of us. Unless, by clear proofs, we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. He's saying, we all think that we are the best thing since sliced bread until we get a glimpse of God. To the person who grows up in a coal mine, he thinks it's normal for everybody to be covered in soot until he gets above the surface. And that's what he's saying. When we actually see God for who he is, we see his perfection, we see his purity, we see his holiness and his righteousness, and then from that we descend to look at ourselves we recognize then how desperately we need God. So if you're here this morning and, and you don't think you need God, let me encourage you to gain a knowledge of God, to know Him, and then you'll recognize your need for Him. Well, the second thing he says is, is that God must reveal Himself to us. He must reveal Himself to us. Look, look, look what he asks for in 17. He says... That God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. You see, brothers and sisters, we need God to reveal himself to us. We can learn of God in creation. We can see his glory and his power. But if we want to know God in a personal and saving way, we need him to reveal himself to us through his word, by the power of his spirit. And you didn't know that Paul was a poet either. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I think about the old hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. He's describing what God has to do. He needs to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see him and so that we can know him and so that we can love him. We have many concerns this morning, but I pray specifically that you would know God. As we turn to this knowledge, Paul is going to ask for three pieces of knowledge about God specifically. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know first what is the hope to which he has called you. Christians, we do not live as people without hope. Uh, We have a hope. We've just detailed three weeks of spiritual blessings that God has given us, both present and future. We have a hope of an eternal life full of joy with Jesus Christ in the presence of God. We have a hope that never perishes. And that gets us to our next point, that we would know. I want to get the the wording right. We would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we have an inheritance awaiting us, imperishable and undefiled in heaven. And we just talked about this inheritance last week. Paul wants you to know the inheritance because knowing that changes the way that we live in the present. And lastly, in verse 19, this is what he's going to focus on for the rest of our text. He writes that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. This word immeasurable, it's like the far surpassing greatness of his power. He's saying there's no other power like it. Uh, Our own words fail to describe how glorious and how immense and how incredible God's power is. But look at the object of God's power here. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards who? Towards those who believe. Brothers and sisters, this is an encouragement. God uses the vastness of his power and authority for your good. And on the other hand, if you're not in Christ, the power of God is not good news for you because we are sinners and because we have offended a holy and righteous God. It's the reason he sent his son to die for us. But for the believer, the power is deployed for our benefit. I say, well, that's great. I like this idea of God being powerful, but how do I know? Well, Paul's going to take us there in the next point. Not only, has Paul, not only has God called us to know his power, but God has already demonstrated his power for us. So let's pick up in verse 20. Ephesians 1, 20. Uh, I'll back up just one verse so we have context. Uh, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
there's one thing which constantly gnaws at the back of our minds as human beings. It is this, that we are mortal. That death is coming for each and every one of us unless Christ returns. God has numbered each and every one of your days. And one day or night, you will breathe your last breath. And so death is a fearful thing. Death induces fear into our hearts. And it's actually astounding to me how many other fears and anxieties that we have are actually rooted in this fundamental fear, the fear of the end of our existence, the fear of death. Because death is real and it's horrible and we all have to face it one day. Well, Christian, be encouraged that when God wanted to demonstrate his power for you, he did so by conquering death. <laughs> and in doing this, we see one of the grand ironies of the gospel message. Uh, remember how these first century, these, these early Jews, they had this messianic expectation. What was he supposed to do? This son of David, this warrior king would come in and he would lead in battle against the Romans and he would establish a new kingdom for Israel. And Christ came and flipped expectations on their head. What did he do? Well, he was a son of David and he did come to do battle. But he did battle against sin and death and evil itself. Not by leading a battle, but by humbling himself as a servant, being obedient to God the Father, even to the point of dying on a cross to pay the penalty that your sins and my sins deserve. Jesus accomplished your salvation through self-sacrifice. And in doing this, God demonstrated his power that not even death had hold over him. As it says in verse 20, God demonstrated his power when he raised Christ from the dead. And that's kind of a big deal. I mean, in church, we hear the word resurrection a lot. We kind of grow numb to it. But over the last 2,000 years since this was written, we've made some pretty incredible technological advances. Humanity has accomplished some pretty cool things. And yet, no matter how much money and effort people like Jeff Bezos and other fear-stricken billionaires pour into companies who research immortality and resurrection... The fatality rate of humanity has always remained the same. It's always one death per person. And the lone exception to this was this demonstration of the power of God when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And God did this for you and for me so that we would know the immensity and the uniqueness of his power. God is able to raise the dead to life immortal. No one else has even come close. And we have a slide here on, on Romans 8.11. Christian, consider the purpose that God has demonstrated his power to you. Look at what Romans 8.11 says. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you're in Christ, God has already demonstrated his power to you by raising you from spiritual death, by granting you faith to know him. But not only this, he's put his spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit, Paul says, 
is the power which raised Christ from the dead. You have the Holy Spirit in you, he's saying. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, he's saying God will also give life to your mortal bodies. Christians, if we want to know our hope, our hope is that we will be resurrected with Christ. Death is not the end. You will be resurrected to a new, imperishable, physical, and eternal body. And this means that if you struggle with fears or anxieties stemming from this fear of death, because of the infinitesimally small chance something bad could happen to you doing something otherwise normal, you don't have to fear death. And when you don't fear death, you, don't, you can actually live as God intended for you to live. Uh, this is a knowledge that changes your practice. Uh, with your eyes fixed on eternity and your life prioritizing the things of God, even when that involves some sort of risk. Uh, our hope of resurrection is the reason that for thousands of years there have been Christian martyrs. Those who have died because they proclaimed the absolute rule of Jesus Christ over all. And they refused to recant even at the point of a sword or a gun. They loved Christ more than they loved their own lives. And they faced the grave knowing that the grave couldn't hold them because it couldn't hold Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a knowledge that changes action. And so the same spirit which raised Christ from the grave dwells in you, Christian. Take courage and reject fear. Well, that's the first demonstration of his power, is resurrection. The second demonstration of his power is that he seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus left heaven as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he returned to heaven as the God-man, Jesus Christ, having lived among us, died for our sins, and risen back to life again. And having been risen, God exalted him over every name that is named and seated him at his right hand. This is, this is royal language. And consider for me one more time the irony of Christ on the cross. As he was beaten, as he was spat upon and insulted by Jew and Gentile alike. Look at this king of the Jews, they said. This man calls himself the son of God. This man promised to save others, but he cannot even save himself. Brothers and sisters, the problem wasn't that he couldn't. He chose not to. At any moment, Jesus could have called legions of angels to come and to save him. But he didn't. He chose to stay on the cross, obedient to God the Father, so that, he could, so that the, the wrath of God could be satisfied against sin. And that all who hope in him could be saved. And so think of Jesus humiliated on the cross. And look what Paul is saying. This same Jesus who is humble and humiliated on the cross is at the right hand of God the Father, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whom they mockingly called the King of the Jews. This man is seated on the throne of heaven, and there is no higher throne. There's no higher authority. That's why Paul says that Jesus Christ is above all power, rule, authority, and dominion, far above every name that is named. It is to the name of Jesus that every knee will ultimately bow down, either willingly 
or unwillingly. And Christ is king, and he will remain king for all eternity in this age and the one to come. There is no power in the universe which can compare. Christian, we know this because Jesus tells us this is perhaps the most offensive part of Christianity. This means that Christ is absolutely unique. He is not one God among many other gods. He does not exist in a pantheon of other godlike creatures. He is the one and only God. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other name by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus. His glory is supreme. He sits on the highest throne and his authority is absolute. There may be other authorities in our world, but their authority is derivative from his. Jesus reigns over them all and does as he pleases. Do you remember when we were going through Ezra and Nehemiah, do you recall how Jesus used the mightiest nation and the kings of the mightiest nation on earth at that time, Persia, <laughs> and how he used Persia to grant his people favor? Uh, do you remember how he used Pharaoh and the Egyptians to grant his people favor as he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus? <laughs> Jesus is the king of kings. That means he commands the kings of our earth. He commands the presidents, prime ministers, and tyrants. And he is working all things toward a glorious conclusion. He is making all things new. And we look forward to this future when heaven and earth are reconciled and the invisible present reign of Christ becomes visible to all. And so we walk by faith in this present reign, looking forward to the day when he returns, as we just proclaimed in the Apostles' Creed. Now, a quick application. Christian, this means that God has given governing authorities real authority. And as Christians, we are called to submit to those authorities, we're called to pray for those authorities, to work for their good. Not because it's perfect, but because God has placed that authority there. But you must always remember, in opposition to godless doctrines, that governmental authority is not the highest authority. God is not the state, and the state is not God. God is the God, and the state is his tool. And we are called to submit to the state so long as it recognizes that higher authority and is not causing us to defy God's law. But when Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5, if you recall, when they were thrown in prison and they were told to stop proclaiming the message of Christ, what did they say to their captors? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God. The state cannot tell us to stop proclaiming truth. It cannot keep us from gathering. It cannot define marriage for us, redefine biology, or command us in any way to violate God's demands. In those cases, we say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll submit to the state in all things, but not in this. I'll even pray for your success, but I will not submit when the state confuses its authority with God's authority. Because Jesus Christ is the King of kings, and he reigns over all the nations of this earth. And historically speaking, it is always a blessing to governments around the world when the people of God remind the state that their authority is not absolute. Peacefully. That's the second way. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of 
God. The third way he demonstrated his power is it says God subordinated or put all things. He subordinated all things under his feet. God subordinated all things under the feet of Christ. He's quoting from Psalm 8. It's a beautiful psalm. And Psalm 8 is is alluding to Genesis 1 where God creates everything. He creates man and he puts everything under man's feet. He gives humanity dominion over everything. Well, what happens? Adam and Eve fall. They fail God's commission to them and sin and death enter into the world. Well, here's the really cool thing that he's saying about Christ right here. Christ has been re-given, this second Adam, Jesus Christ, another man with a perfected nature, comes in and through his life and death, he's undoing the failure of the first Adam. Christ has dominion over all things. All things have been placed under his feet and he is making all things new. He's defeating evil and bringing all things to a final perfect conclusion. He's succeeding where Adam failed. And what a wonderful truth that is. Lastly, what do we see in verse 22? He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Again, that head over all things is just emphasizing the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that he gave him to the church then? Well, it means this. In all of this, if I can just summarize everything I've said so far, um, it would be this. Jesus is high and exalted, all power, Jesus great, above everything else. And God is saying here that he gave him to the church, which is his body. He's saying that all of this considerable power and authority, all the power in the universe which Jesus wields, he uses for the benefit of the church. (laughs) To those who belong to him. That's an incredible thing. And and we, he describes us as the body of Christ. And he's working for the good of his own body. And we're filled by him, as it says, by his spirit. We're maintained and nourished by Christ. Christian, do you understand what this is saying? This This is saying that all of the might and power of Christ he uses for your good. That he loves you more than you love your own children. That he cares for you more than you could ever care for your own children. And he has demonstrated his power for you. So what, what practical difference does, does knowing God and knowing his power mean for you? How does that change your day-to-day? I might rephrase and say, how can it not change everything? Uh, truly knowing God and knowing his power is the only way that we can make sense of Jesus saying incredible things like, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Do you understand how incomprehensible this is to a person who does not have a knowledge of God? The world tells us life is short. Live for the moment. Live for yourself. Who knows if there's a God? Make the most of the little time that you have and serve yourself. 
And in the realm of the intellect, who cares what anyone else thinks? Truth is relative. So go and live your own truth, even if it's patently false. Living for the next life looks like foolishness. It looks like wasting the little time that you have on empty religious rituals. Serving people who cannot serve you back and serving a God who cannot be seen. But the reason the world thinks like this is because they lack an accurate knowledge of God and of his immense power. Like France before World War II, they're overconfident in their own assessment of life and the afterlife. Unless we bring them the knowledge of God and the person of Jesus Christ, that will also have disastrous consequences. But for those who bow before Christ Jesus now, you know better because you have an accurate knowledge of God. And this knowledge of his power resets your priorities. You know that God created us to know him and to love him and to enjoy him. And he's given us the opportunity to do so. And we also recognize that life is short, but eternity is not. And so we express our faith in a God who rules by not living for the present, but by living for eternity. We lay up our treasures in heaven. We don't work for that which doesn't last, but we live for eternity and we work for eternity. Our hope is not ultimately in this life. There are very good things to be enjoyed in this life. But our ultimate, life, our ultimate hope is in the life to come. Our ultimate priority is in eternal things. So let me ask you this morning, are you prioritizing what is eternal? I'm not saying neglect your family, neglect your job, neglect important things that you have to do. I'm saying where are your priorities this morning? Are you prioritizing the things of God? Are you prioritizing the gathering of believers for worship? Are you prioritizing fellowship with those believers? Are you prioritizing prayer to God? Are you prioritizing getting to know God through his word, whether we're gathered together or out on our own? And again, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm just saying when you truly know God for who he is, I'm telling you, you have an opportunity to know the creator of the universe. How could we not take that up? And so our goal becomes not to serve ourselves, but to serve God and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lastly, the last application is that if we truly know God's power, if we truly believe that he reigns over all things and that he works all things for the good of his beloved children, it means that whether things are good in our life or whether things are very bad in our life, we trust that God is reigning and we give him the glory in good times and in bad times because he is reigning. So if you're here this morning, let me, let me close with you. You're all here this morning. That's a stupid way to say that. Let me close with this. Seek the knowledge of God. Seek after that eternal treasure, that pearl of great price. It is impossible to know God and not to love God. It is impossible to know him and not be changed by him. It's impossible to experience Christ and not to treasure him. Jesus reigns over all things and he loves us dearly. And he's demonstrated his power to you so that you can live in a way, in accordance, Paul says, with the calling with which he's called us. Let's pray.